just like you start with the internet and, and, and sort of point out, if you like, that uh, one of the, the internet and let's say things like email originally and then uh, social networking sites and so on since then have been sold to us by the techies on the promise that it will enlarge your social world enormously. Uh, you'll be able to live in the global village. And the answer is it seems not to be the case. Um, about a year ago, as a result of a lot of the discussion that was going on on Facebook, Facebook did a complete trawl of their entire database, all 500 million users or whatever it is, to look at this number of friends that people have. And contrary to popular myth, people do not have very large numbers of friends. The average uh, is somewhere uh, between 120 and 130. Yes, there's a very long tail to the right. Some people have uh, several thousand. A lot of those are people who are using it professionally to access fan bases. Uh, they're by and large not people using it uh, for truly social uh, purposes. People who are into a much uh, more a sense of competition. And in fact, uh, these are Facebook's data again. If you look at the number of people you actually talk to, uh, and these are the, the critical ones here, these are these first two sets of columns, the darker blue are uh, males, the pinker ones are females. Uh, irrespective of the size of the number of friends you have on Facebook, you actually spend most of your time, most of the traffic is to a very, very small number of people. Uh, and this is one of our recent studies showing that irrespective of how much you use uh, Facebook or instant messaging, any of those media, it doesn't actually support a bigger social grouping for you. And basically you don't have a bigger uh, online social network that you have an offline social network. So the question is, why is that the case? Well, what's causing this limit? I'm going to sort of backtrack and take you through a lot of somewhat old stuff, but a, a lot of new stuff uh, that we've been doing more recently. And the starting point is uh, these graphs on the social uh, frame stuff, so they're just plots of uh, social group size in this case, to get some measure of relative near cortex size. And the, I just want to make two points. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, irrespective of what data set you use, irrespective of how you analyze the data, whether you use ratios or indices or just use raw volumes, uh, <clears throat> whether or not you use phylogenetic controls or not simply doesn't affect the pattern. It's unbelievably robust. Uh, you get this general relationship between social group size and um, uh, neocortex size in particular. Uh, it seems to be even tighter if you go further up front than taking the whole neocortex in. And by the way, there is the orangutan. Carl Van Schaik's data on orangutan community sizes, uh, right where they should be. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing is that you've got these grays, and they've come across very clearly. I'll come back to those because they're really quite interesting. So that's the sort of starting point. I just remind you very quickly that uh, if you like the social brain hypothesis, this is not a number effect. Uh, the number effect is a, a, a kind of emergent property. It's what they're actually trying to solve. That's the functional driver for it. But the way they're solving it is by having using much more complex social and cognitive uh, competences to achieve larger group sizes in some ways. And this is uh, whatever it is, four sets of data showing that uh, behavioral complexity also 
electronics across uh, primates, sometimes with these nice grade effects uh, pulled out as well, um, with neocortex, I said, as behavioral uh, complexity that underpins the uh, numerical effect of group sizes. And then underneath that somewhere, and this has always been the view we've taken because it fits better with the kind of evolutionary perspective of gradual changes, underneath that is some kind of basic cognition that's producing that. So I've never been a great one for modularity on, on a large scale. And it seemed to me that what you're getting as these kind of social cognitive quote-unquote modules is an emergent property of the scale at which you can do a lot of these kind of second-order uh, metacognition types of things. And perhaps that's a confusing term to use because Chris has used that for something else. But I just point this one out to you, which I think is really neat. This is inhibition of prepotent action um, as a function of uh, frontal lobe gray matter volume across the primates, right away from uh, lemurs to, to, to apes. And that seems to me to be one of the critical things, capacities needed to allow us to do what we do, the ability not to grab the, the biggest reward you can see in front of you straight away. I should say, uh, this is just more data, these are all phylogenetically controlled. <clears throat> but these data themselves are quite nice because in contrast to the data that Rob showed you yesterday, these are nine basic executive function tasks, pure reasoning tasks, essentially. Um, and we did a, a, a very extensive model selection analysis looking at almost every bit of the brain we could get out of databases. And what comes out of these, this is, this is by far the best, essentially the best, best volume, uh, model, is hippocampus volume uh, as the best predictor, uh, followed by neocortex ratio, and then total brain volume as a scaling effect, we think. Um, and these are the data for all these different, uh, nine different tasks, but it is hippocampus volume. Hippocampus identity is terribly surprising in that context because these are almost all uh, comparison tasks and spatial tasks. And the hippocampus is much involved in, in learning processes, and that's probably what's going on there. Um, <clears throat> so we're back from that. Um, the other thing I just want to remind you is that it's not just a hardware problem. It's absolutely critical uh, that there is a lot of software development in this, and there's a whole great basis to uh, the social brain hypothesis, it seems to me. Yes, okay, you've got to have a big computer to do all these kinds of computations, but if you haven't had the social experience early in life, it's no good. Uh, it, it, you might just as well not have it. Uh, and, and these data, which go back to Tracy Joffe's analysis way back in the late 70s, I think is particularly critical here. What she showed is, yes, total brain volume is predicted by the length of period of investment across primates, that's to say gestation plus lactation, but particularly the non-B1, uh, so that's everywhere forward of B1 uh, neocortex is best predicted by the length of the period of socialization, that's the period between weaning and first reproduction, precisely the period in which you're learning your social skills. And just as an example of that is one of our very first uh, neuroimaging studies we did, which was looking at uh, emotional face cue recognition. It was kind of using those kind of uh, <coughs> um, uh, facial uh, 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 cartoons, as it were, uh, across a wide range, 80 to 50 year olds. And the key thing here is that 
the focus of activation on, on, that, on, on that recognition process is up in the frontal lobe uh, early on, and then seems to switch later on in life into subcortical areas, uh, particularly uh, the basal ganglia and thalamus, but also uh, the limbic system to some extent too. And what's really kind of interesting about that is the age at which that shift seems to take place is 25, which you might think is very late. But that's also the age at which the frontal lobes finally settle down and mature and everything uh, achieves its, its, its adult level. So this is my argument for why all you young folk have such trouble with your relationships, because you're having to crank through them. Uh, it's hard work. And when you get uh, to, to be 25, you kind of automate it. And that's essentially what's going on. It's another example of the socialization process. Okay. So if you look at the context of this kind of social brain effect, what has been a surprise for us is the fact that primates behave very, very differently to other mammals and birds. That in primates, uh, yes, it's true that across the wide range of mammalian species, taxa, you get a social brain effect, a co-evolution between brain size and sociality. But the character of that is very different uh, in the non-primates. Uh, in two respects, first of all, this process here, this transition is being driven essentially by transition from loose polygamous, promiscuously mating social systems into monogamy, into pair-bonded monogamy. Whereas this social system, this, this effect up here is, is actually a quantitative effect being driven by increasing social group size. And that seems to be unique to the primates with one or two exceptions. Uh, some of the exceptions in a minute. The other is the key uh, uh, difference between these kind of uh, sort of um, loops round here, as it were, in these uh, two groups, young and cardinals, compared with primates. You've got lots of intermediate steps going on uh, in the non-primates. In primates, you get a simple switch from one to the other, uh, with kind of no backtracking and no messing around. So the former sociality looks much tighter uh, in, in, in primates and other species. And it became apparent why that was the case when we looked at the process of encephalization across fossil time. So this is plotting the fossil brains against time and then taking a regression equation for the slope of brain, relative brain size increase across time. Uh, and essentially, essentially that's what that is, it's the, the slope parameter. But look at the differences across the orders. You've got things like feliforms, the, the cat family and the ruminants, who are hardly changing in terms of brain size across 30 million years of, uh, of fossil history. Whereas the anthropoids in particular, I like that, but the camel <laughs> And one or two others, and this, this uh, uh, and particularly the horse, the equid, uh, uh, well, the bristled actuals as a whole, but the, the horses in particular, they seem to be the other major and we're worried about this one because it's quite a small sample of species. But there's very strong signal of a group size, brain size effect in, in, in the, the, the uh, frisodactyl stroke, in particular the equids. Um, uh, at which becomes clear, I think, from these data, which simply plot the proportion of what living species genera that have bonded social systems uh, against the relative encephalization slope. And there's really an incredibly good correlation here. So what seems to be happening is those taxonic groups 
that have been satellite parts, have been satellite parts because they have uh, been uh, developing bonded social systems. Okay, so when we plug humans in, in, into this in, in the, uh, on the eighth line, we get uh, this infamous uh, predicted value of 150, and this kind of looks at data, casual data, so I'm not going to bother to go into it, I just pointed out, and a lot of quantitative data uh, showing that these are, are really merely remarkable on this one here, which was published about a month ago, um, which I thought was a very clever analysis, although it's rather complex, but again, uh, showing that using Twitter exchange data uh, to estimate uh, 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 social uh, network sizes essentially shows that they typically lie between 100 and 200 individuals, which are the 95% confidence intervals around, around 150 of the eight equations. Okay, so we don't need to go uh, do any more of that. The point I want to make is that our social networks of about 150, we'll take a bit, don't look like this. What they really look like is something like that. They're much more uh, heterogeneous and broken up. And in fact, when you uh, do, uh, as we've done, it is plot something like uh, frequency of contact and time since last contact uh, against emotional closeness of individual relationships in these networks. And we've done this with several data sets now, and we get exactly the same picture. You get this very nice, striking negative relationship. The people you so this is a sort of uh, a very simple scale that seems to work extremely well with emotional closeness from zero to ten, and time since last contact as a, a kind of index of frequency of contact zero months ago, eight months ago. You get this very nice negative relationship. Those you love dearly, you see most often. Those you're kind of you know lukewarm about, you see less often within your network. But if you look at those data, it looks like there's a series of layers in there. So we ended up doing a lot of very heavy cranking uh, to look at for structure, essentially, within those, these data sets. So these are our two data sets here. This is the ethnographic data set that we've used, and this is our Christmas card data set. And essentially, this is using the maths of fractals to look for recurring patterns. The key is the position of these uh, uh, peaks. Uh, these are just harmonics around the peaks. Uh, the position of these peaks indicates the, 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 the point at which you have a recurring fraction, uh, recur recurring pattern, and when you translate the fractal parameter into what it means in the real world, what it says is there's a recurring pattern on a, on a fixed ratio of three uh, right the way through the system. And these guys here had another go at this independently. We didn't know about them, they didn't know about us. They used a slightly different method called a, a Horton order analysis, which is essentially the same kind of thing, but much simpler. Uh, I'm going to say it myself. Awful lot of time. Um, uh, for hunter-gatherer uh, group sizes, and the slope on the line here uh, um, uh, tells you what the scaling factor is. Uh, they actually got a little under four, um, uh, and we thought initially that was different to that, but it turns out that it depends whether you include this uh, data point in the regression. That data point is you, the individual. So this is you in a family, an extended family, etc. Uh, if you take that out, uh, you get a scaling ratio of three. We found that out when we looked at uh, a whole bunch of mammals in the same way and discovered exactly the same effect there. So these are a Horton order analysis, just the other way around. Uh, for elephants, two primates and orcas, killer whales. And again, the slopes on these uh, parameters almost exactly uh, three. 
that all these species, including us, have social networks which have a structure in which you have a scaling relationship of three. And what that means for you is something that looks like this. So here you are sitting at the center of your social world. You have five intimate friends here. Uh, a layer of 15, and these are inclusives, that includes the five who are uh, best friends, if you like, something like good friends uh, and friends. And after that, there are two more layers we know about from our data, a layer of 500 and a layer of 1500. That's always said to be somewhere close to the number of faces you can put names to. But the key here is that as you go out, the number of people increases, the quality of the relationship declines, the frequency with which you see the person declines in a very robust and stable way. And there are real drop-downs at each point. They appear to drop off the real phase shift. And this is the, the kind of critical boundary here at 150. These people you know personally, you have a reciprocated relationship with. These people you know, but it tends to be a one-way relationship. So if you ask these people to go out for a drink with you on Saturday night, they probably say yes. If you ask most of these people out here, the Queen sits here, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, the people who read the news on television so you know who they are, you know a little bit about them, but I bet you, when you ask them to go out for a drink, they probably look a bit disgust and walk away. So it's a real phase shift, as it were, in the quality of the relationship. Now it's turned out that those layers uh, are really quite interesting. So uh, just remember those figures. Because if you go back to the original uh, group size, brain size data for uh, the primates, and, and these are using frontal lobe uh, grave matter volumes. Um, you can see these, what look like, in, in fact, very nice graves across the monkeys. This is the ape, so it was, this is no surprise, but that's a cluster of monkeys and prosimians from the original analysis, which seemed sort of like a big thick cigar, turned out, in fact, to be very fine-tuned graves, and they're really quite tight. Uh, these are residuals uh, from uh, the eight line, take the eight line as, as a basis and then calculate residuals orthogonal to that. Uh, these are the residuals uh, set up by uh, 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 having four grades, as it were. They're really very, very clear and there's very tight clustering. The R squared is extraordinarily high when you do that, which gets what you, you get from, from a random scattering. But what's interesting, oh, oh, well, say, what I think is going on here, we're still kind of working on this trying to make sense of, make sense of this, is that as primates have gone through, and we're not doing linear evolution here, by the way, oh, not least because taxonomy is utterly mixed up. This is why this has been a real problem to try and sort out, because the taxonomy in here is just utterly confused. You've got uh, pro-simians, uh, uh, old world monkeys, and new world monkeys, all intermingled on these three great lines. They're, they're, basically, they're said to be a cognitive brain not any form of taxonomic rate. But that's what seems to be happening here, is you, as you pressure to increase group size, uh, pushes you up here, you, you increase brain size. Uh, you, you hit an upper limit, uh, which there really isn't a way out of, out of here, except to introduce some completely new dimension, which takes you off onto another grade, which allows you to increase. So you're introducing, with a major shift in, in, in brain volume, you're introducing something Cognitive, a cognitive level that's really novel, as it were, and so on up through here, up to humans. But what's really interesting is these trans phase, phase points, the phase transition points, which are at 5, 15, and 50. 
So it looks like all we've done is add one more layer on. Everybody has these. If you're a stupid primate, you only go around in groups of five, as it were. If you're a smart primate, you can add another layer on to that. If you're a very smart primate, you can add another layer on beyond that. And then uh, once you're into the eight human line, you can start to bridge over into to, to the outer layer. What is kind of interesting, though, is these points down here, because these are monogamous species. And it's turned out from the work that Suzanne Schultz and, and, and Kitopi have done that monogamy is a kind of demographic and social sink. Once you're into monogamy and primates, you cannot get out of it. From the, this is from a, a, a phylogenetic analysis. And it looks like the reason is uh, you also have to change brain size. You're dropping way down on your gradients, as it were, dropping brain size down radically. And that's preventing you in some way from getting back out of it. Okay, going back to our uh, social networks, uh, you might think of them as sort of homogenous. In fact, they're not. They consist of two separate networks which are interdigitated very strongly a kinship network and a, and a friendship network. <clears throat> These two behave utterly differently to each other. So, this is, this is an 18 month longitudinal study which we finished last year, looking at how. Relationships within a network changed over time. So uh, these are the mean uh, uh, emotional closeness to uh, kin, uh, and these are the mean emotional closeness to friends. And that's right across the whole network. That's the average across the whole network of kin, uh, who many of whom are second cousins twice removed, for example. And you can see that kinship network, kinship relationships remain unbelievably stable over time. This is over distance as well, because lots of these people are moving away uh, uh, from home. So in fact, it looks like absence really does make the heart very common. But look what happens with friendship. Very, very quickly, within nine months of having moved away, the relationship starts to plummet. And it starts to plummet uh, by a whole level, as it were. You start to slip over these these layers, which is what these data show. So this looks at emotional closeness relative to change in layer. So these people dropped a layer uh, between the, the beginning and the end of the study, eight over eight months. These didn't. These are friends. Look how stable kinship relationships are despite the change in, in, in layer, essentially frequency of, of, of contact. Uh, but once you move away uh, and don't see friends, they start to drop off very quickly, and it seems that happens extremely fast within a matter of months. How do you keep relationships up under those sort of circumstances? Okay, so these are the same people. It's just looking over the first nine months, which is critical. Uh, this is the change in uh, emotional closeness. Again, overall, this is for friends only, but average overall individuals. For those with whom you decrease between the beginning, uh, month zero and month nine, the amount of activity you did with them, so these are going out together, going shopping together, going on holiday together, the same amount, or uh, increase the amount of activity with them over time. This is the same except for uh, direct face-to-face -face, uh, conversational interaction, so it's, it's a slightly different thing. And I just point out to you this extraordinary sex difference here. Right? What stops relationships collapsing for girls is talking together. What stops relationships collapsing for boys is banging their heads together. 
And this is my, my argument for the fact that social networking technology, is, uh, and indeed mobile phones, which is what this study was looking at in particular, uh, <clears throat> is perfectly designed for women's social networking. But it's useless for blokes, has a massively negative effect. Blokes talk to each other, they end up falling out. What they, <laughs> what they have to do is they have to go and bang their heads together. Right? And, and that's my pitch as to why boys' phone calls only last 7.3 seconds on average. <laughs> they only need to say, I'll see you down at the pub at 7 o'clock. Right? That's the important thing. So it was a kind of neat uh, 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 gender effect. Okay, so what's really going on under there that's making these relationships work? I've, I've argued for a long time it's a dual process um, uh, mechanism. It involves a, an emotionally intense component which comes off the back of grooming in primates and sets up the kind of psychopharmacological environment in which this second component, which is a cognitive component, hence the brain process comes into play or allows that to, to, to be developed. And this, this then involves developing relationships of trust and reciprocity and so So a little bit about each of these. Um, <clears throat> Andy showed one version of these data uh, before. These are on multi-level intentionality tasks, multi-level theory of mind. It's sort of, I think it's pretty much the same kind of stuff as Chris, Chris was talking about when he referred to metacognition essentially. It's, it's the ability to go on denotwise down here. This, I think, is our uh, second set of data on this, but we've, we've now got about four different studies, all showing that the, the, you've got this very strong peak of fifth-order intentionality, uh, something equivalent to that, um, uh, as the sort of normative limit to what abnormal adult humans can do. Nonetheless, with a lot of variance, I would ignore Tales, that's almost certainly a methodological artifact, uh, but uh, there's clearly a lot of variance in here. And when all this study, which was uh, James Stiller's study, we then asked people to tell us what their inner core peak uh, uh, sizes were, their, their, their social network. We got these very nice data here. We, a lot of scatter in it, but it's significant. We know a lot of the, what determines a lot of scatter. It's partly a gender effect. Women are better on these tasks and have higher peak sizes. Seen that very nicely from the, from the, from the uh, second slide I showed you from the uh, Facebook data. But there's also personality effects in there from several different personality dimensions, now it turns out, from our work and other people. <clears throat> What's kind of interesting in this context is when we did an fMRI study to look at how people cope with these levels of intentionality, there turned out to be a very strong parametric effect, that's their quantitative effect of what level you're working at. So the higher the level of intentionality you're working at matched against uh, factual memory equivalence, as it were, as the baseline, then uh, these core, in particular, these core um, uh, standard theory of blind areas of the uh, temporal parietal junction here, the temporal pole, and, and the, the uh, frontal cortex, uh, fire up disproportionately. They, they're working harder, if you like, these areas when you're trying to deal with fifth order compared to when you're trying to do second order when, you map, when you're matching for uh, factual memory, as it were. Um, in other words, social cognition is hugely costly in neural terms. You're cranking away in there, and it's very costly. That's why the social brain, if you like, is so costly. 
And that then led us on to, uh, this is a composite of about three uh, neuroimaging studies, uh, to look to see whether there's correlation, or right, let me get just back here for a second. <clears throat> what we've essentially shown here is there's correlation between a behavioral measure and a cognitive measure. And the question we kind of then wanted to ask is, well, is there a three-way correlation between these two and the hardware? So there's a, a behavioral outcome, software uh, component, and a hardware component. All three are locked together. And these are what these essentially show. So this is a very gross stereological analysis where we're just looking at massive chunks. And it turns out that, in particular, this and we're only really looking at the uh, prefrontal cortex here, defined by the uh, anterior point of the corpus callosum uh, buried under there. Um, <clears throat> and we're comparing these, essentially these, uh, um, whatever it is, eight areas, uh, left and right, and up and, up and down, and in and out, as it were. Um, and it's this area here, the orthofrontal cortex in particular, that produces a significant relationship between uh, the number of friends you have and your uh, mentalizing competencies on these multi-level intentional effects. And this is a, a, vo a voxel-based morphometry study working at a very, very much finer scale and looking at, again, this is a region of, of interest analysis, so we're looking at the kind of core theory of mind areas in particular. But among those, what gets picked out as having uh, a, a, a conjoint uh, correlation with these two uh, psychological and behavioral measures is the orbital frontal cortex again. Um, and and <clears throat> Rob remarked uh, on uh, uh, uh stuff on, on frontal uh, cortex size in humans, and it's true that they scale in the same scale, but it's worth pointing out that the scaling ratio of that, or to say the slope, is actually 1.2 on the double log plot. It is the frontal lobe plot going up furiously fast, they're not going up proportionately. Okay, so that's the, the cognition side of the story, the, the behavioral side of the story, and this uh, pharmacological underpinnings is about grooming. If you look at grooming time in primates, it increases generally with group size. The bigger the group you have, the more grooming you do, but it hit, seems to hit this upper limit at about 20% of total, total day time. And this, is, this limit is set by the needs of a big college, essentially. But this is a path analysis we did looking at the structure of the underpinning relationship. And you can see grooming is very strongly, these are the partial correlations determined by group size, uh, also by sex ratio and female dispersion pattern. We've got a nice drive here coming in from predation list determining grooming group size, which is then uh, sets up the uh, neocortex volume, as it were, and going to, to grooming. But what's interesting about this is that when you're increasing group size, these are means for individual primate uh, species, by the way. When you increase um, uh, group size in this way and increase grooming time, you are not grooming with more people, right? These animals up here are not grooming with more individuals necessarily than those animals down there. In fact, they're often grooming with fewer. And this is one of the peculiarities. These are data from Gelada uh, plotting uh, grooming clique size here, which is the blue, and grooming time in the red against the number of females in the group. And you can see uh, grooming time is increasing, uh, but clique size, clique size is following that initially, but then it plummets. So, so once you get up into very big group sizes, 
you start to worry more about the quality of relationship that you have. And in order to make that relationship work, you really have to invest everything in it. And essentially, this is what these two sets of analyses show. Um, they're both uh, uh, phylogenetically controlled, but what they are are <clears throat> measures of uh, network structure. So this is the density of, of uh, 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 relationships in feed-only grooming uh, 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 networks in uh, the Gwenon, uh, Baboon, Macaque group. So it's very, very confined to groups that have uh, a relatively small, have um, uh, uh, relatively large groups and are all female uh, bonded, as it were. And these are uh, uh, a measure of uh, essentially clique membership. It's a rather difficult, complex measure that network analysis an analysts use, uh, and it's not obvious quite how you meant it. It is not obvious in the word what it means, but essentially it's a measure of how many grooming uh, uh, subcliques you're involved in as an individual. And both of these correlate negatively with uh, neocortex size. In other words, what's happening, even within this very, very small group of uh, taxonomic groups, who have basically the same kinds of social systems, the species that live in uh, <clears throat> much, who, who have um, relatively smarter uh, are focusing their relationships on a much smaller proportion of uh, the total number of partners available. This is partially out group size as well. Um, in other words, the, the whole the trick they seem to be managing is when they're very smart, what they can do is concentrate all their social effort onto a very small number of key social partners without causing the group as a whole to fall apart. So, uh, that's kind of seems to me a, a pointer in some ways towards the smart cognition. Okay, how, how is the, the grooming component working? It's endorphins that's uh, been shown for a long time. It's just Barry Coburn's rather nice little experiment. Uh, I'm not going to go into the, the details. When you plug humans into this, uh, we uh, should have uh, appear up here if we're trying to bond, bond our, our groups the way monkeys and apes do. That would require us to have about 45% of our total time grooming. In fact, we spend about 20% uh, of our time in social interaction. These are time budget data uh, for, from, a, from seven different uh, modern populations, a very wide range of, uh, of um, uh, uh, ecologies. Um, <clears throat> the average is exactly 20%. A lot of variance around that. Remember, these are averages too. A lot of variance around that. It looks like we use the same time. We just use it somehow more efficiently. But there's a problem in, in terms of bonding very large groups here because if the upper limit is set at 20% of time for social grooming, then if you uh, extrapolate through the various equations for uh, uh, um, uh, fossil hominin populations, then this is what you get here, all the astrolopithecines down here, Homo erectus, archaic humans, modern humans, Neanderthals up there. You've got this whacking great bonding gap up here. And what I think is, uh, has happened essentially is that we've brought these three activities into play, uh, almost certainly successively, uh, and this one coming into play latest because it depends on language, and that each of these are good triggers for endorphins, but the point is that you can trigger endorphin release in a large number of people simultaneously, relatively speaking, whereas grooming is one-on-one, -on -one. 
And we still do it, and it's still a one-on-one -on -one activity. But to get a bigger bonding effect, you need somehow to bridge that. And this is what these are doing. And here's some data from a whole series of studies that we've done over the years, trying to look at the endorphin activation uh, using uh, pain threshold uh, as a proxy for that. Um, we're always comparing some form of performance. This is music, but it's comparing singing against something dreadfully boring like praying. Uh, this is um, drumming. This is a drumming circle compared with, with, again, two control groups, one of whom is just listening to music, the other of whom is watching a boring video. Um, and these are, the, these are the differences pre and post activity in pain threshold. If you, if you ha have this uh, active uh, performance, uh, you get a positive upsurge in, in, in pain threshold, uh, reflecting an underlying surge in endorphins. If you haven't done anything, no effect. And these are comparing laughter. These are all uh, different laughter uh, uh, studies, essentially the same thing, watching videos. Except this one, this was done at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, on comedy audiences, and they're being compared with people watching boring things, almost always golfing instruction videos. <laughs> Except for this, the Edinburgh Fringe lot who are watching drama, uh, small drama productions. And again, you can see if you laugh together, you get this massive upsurge. If you don't, uh, you either get a negative effect or, or, or no effect. There's a, a very strong difference between the two. And if you take the, this effect, so this is kind of critical to social bonding on a bigger scale. If you take this into the kind of um, uh, 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 <clears throat> Uh, internet world, as it were, or the digital world, um, you can ask you know, how well relationships mediated by uh, digital media actually work. Uh, so this is, a, this is a diary study we did last year, looking at relationship satisfaction or interaction satisfaction uh, over a period of several weeks um, for every single interaction, uh, the 40-odd, 45, I think it was, uh, subjects who, who, who did these diaries did for, for different modes of communication with their five closest friends. So this is face to face, by Skype, by telephone, by instant messaging, uh, by um, what's that? Not even text. Sorry, yes, you're right. Text. Uh, this is email or social networking sites, and you can see this massive difference between Skype and face to face compared with the others. The others really don't differ. And it's something about the immediacy, the sense of being right in front of the person, and the feedback you're getting uh, from facial expressions, the immediacy of that feedback and the direct feedback itself, the speed with which it comes and the, the richness of it that seems to affect the rating. But also, what's important is you laugh more under these two conditions, and whether you laugh or not has a massive effect, irrespective of which medium you use, whether it's an emoticon or a real laugh, you have a massive inflation in interaction satisfaction, uh, irrespective of the duration of the interaction. There's something about laughter and doing these activities which seems to be critical. So the question is, well, you know, if it's just an endorphin effect, why don't you, uh, you know, do it on your own in a sense? Because uh, we do, and, you know, if it's just an endorphin surge, you should get the effect. We could all go and sit in, sit in, sit in the, the um, gym, uh, do a bit of training, it all come out and, and we'll all love each other more. The answer is, there's something about doing this together in synchrony. So this is a study we did a couple of years ago on these guys here. We don't usually talk about this a lot. Well, we do this year, because we won't. Uh, <laughs> this year, Oxford lost. 
So these are these are the two Oxford boat groups, the Blues boat and the second boat, the Isis boat. Uh, and we're interested in looking at the effect of synchrony on uh, endorphin activation. Because uh, the whole point of this kind of sweep ball rowing is synchrony. You win or lose by how synchronized you are and how synchronized you can remain over the length of the course. So they did it all twice, they did it alone, they're doing it on these machines, they then did it in a virtual boat where they were linked up into uh, 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 groups of six or eight, um, and they did it, repeated that uh, later on. And you can see this nice upsurge here of the endorphin effect just from the physical exercise, and then when they do it in virtual groups, and they know they're in virtual groups, they're sitting beside each other uh, in coordination, you get a 100% increase of doubling of the endorphin surge. This is not a power effect, they're off rowing at exactly the same power right the way through. Tell that because we can read it off here, but anyway, we told them to keep that. Okay, so the problem is, you know, there's something about synchrony of interaction that, that, that's important in this context.